Welcome to The Green Investor, powered by Investopedia. I'm Caleb Silver, the Editor-in-Chief of Investopedia, and your guide and fellow traveler on our journey into what it means to be a green investor today and where this investing theme is headed in the future. In this episode, Big Money is putting big money to work in ESG funds on Wall Street, even amid the controversies surrounding the investment theme. And how do governments rebuild their country's infrastructures in more green and sustainable ways, and what's holding them back? We get into that with Chris Lewis, the head of the Global Infrastructure Team at EY, one of the biggest consultants on the planet. But first and always, this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. All listeners should do their own research or consult with their financial advisor or broker before making any investment decisions. Green money is starting to flow down Wall Street again. Well, it's more of a trickle, but it's still a sign that ESG-related investments still have some spring in their step. Earlier this month, Morgan Stanley, the New York-based investment bank, introduced six ESG products. The equity and fixed income exchange-traded funds are managed by Calvert Research and Management, one of the OGs of environmental, social, and governance investing that Morgan Stanley acquired in 2021 as part of its purchase of Eaton Vance Corp. We're not talking billions quite yet, but Morgan Stanley has allocated $20 million of seed capital to each of the six Calvert funds, along with a group of outside investors that backed the launch. No word on who they are just yet. It's not Morgan Stanley's first foray into ESG related investment vehicles, of course. The bank brought in assets of a record $36 billion in ESG-labeled ETFs in 2021, according to Bloomberg. That slowed way down to just $2.9 billion last year amid a broader market sell-off and a tough year for ESG and socially responsible investments. Still, the launch of these new ESG ETFs via Calvert is notable. Let's do the news. $1 trillion. That's the amount of money that global governments gave away to fossil fuel companies and projects last year in subsidies despite many promises to curb their reliance on those energy sources in the future. The International Energy Agency estimates that the combined subsidies for oil, natural gas, electricity, and coal hit an all-time high in 2022 as soaring energy prices drove inflation to multi-decade highs, straining economies around the world. The spending by governments last year was more than double the total global investments in renewable energy sources, according to figures from Bloomberg NEF, and it was happening even as global leaders made big promises to combat climate change at COP26 and other gatherings. While many European companies say they want to reduce their carbon footprint, only a small handful of them are taking actionable steps to get there. That's according to CDP, a nonprofit that analyzes climate disclosures. The report concludes that of a study of around 1,500 European corporations, less than 5% of companies reported specific climate actions proving that they are making necessary changes to meet their targets. Investors with about $1.5 trillion in assets under management have called on Europe's biggest banks to stop the direct financing of new oil and gas fields by the end of this year. Those investors, which include Aegon Asset Management and Candrium, are among 30 money managers urging the banks, which include Barclays, BNP Paribas, Deutsche Bank, and Societe Generale, to stop financing activities that, quote, may jeopardize the global path to net zero, end quote, according to a joint statement released last week. According to Share Action, a nonprofit activist group that works with shareholders to pressure companies to make social changes, between the years 2016 and 2021, Barclays and BNP both provided $46 billion of financing to companies expanding their oil and gas activities. Credit Agricole and SockGen delivered $34 billion of financing, while Deutsche Bank provided $28 billion. 
$27 billion of funds from the Inflation Reduction Act are about to make their way into disadvantaged communities for projects to cut greenhouse gas emissions and boost clean energy. The cash infusion from last year's sweeping climate and tax law is meant to drive the deployment of solar panels, heat pumps, and electric vehicles in underserved places around the nation. Minnesota lawmakers just passed a bill requiring the state to exclusively use 100% carbon-free electricity by the year 2040. The legislation, signed by Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz this week, joins the 10,000 Lake State with a group of 10 other states, including California, Hawaii, Illinois, Massachusetts, New Mexico, New York, Oregon, Rhode Island, Virginia, and Washington, plus Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, in having laws that require a transition to 100% carbon-free or renewable electricity. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said he will propose legislation that would bar the state and its local governments from using environmental social governance criteria when issuing municipal bonds. It's DeSantis' latest move in his push against what he has called, quote, a woke agenda. The Florida governor released new details last week on his plan to require state and local government investments only to be guided on potential returns, and it's threatened the state's asset managers to stop using ESG investing strategies if they want to keep overseeing the state's money, including $220 billion of pension funds. Just Capital, an independent nonprofit that tracks, analyzes, and engages with large corporations and their investors on how they perform on the public's priorities, is out with its ranking of the most just companies in the world. Those priorities, according to Just Capital, include treatment of workers, how a company treats its community and its customers, corporate governance and responsiveness to shareholders, and how a company minimizes its environmental impact. The top three on the Just Capital rankings this year, Bank of America, NVIDIA, and Microsoft. We'll link to the full list and the methodology in the show notes. Infrastructure spending. It's one of the only kinds of government spending that almost everyone can usually get behind. But progress usually lacks promises due to red tape, long bidding processes, and projects that take years, if not decades, to complete. As governments pledge more and more money to building greener infrastructures, how do they actually achieve progress and get things done through the labyrinth of politics and the private sector? Chris Lewis leads the global infrastructure team at EY, where he works closely with governments as the key advisor to major projects in nuclear carbon capture, water, road, rail, and renewables. He spent his early career advising oil and gas clients on the investment programs across their downstream and upstream operations. And he is our special guest this week on The Green Investor. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Caleb. Great to be here. How does EY, which is one of the largest global consultants, I know it uses a bunch of other names now, but how does EY work with governments to implement infrastructure transitions towards more sustainable and renewable energy sources? What is it that governments need to help them lead the way or get through some of that friction? The role that EY often plays is one of the key advisor. So the role of a key advisor into a major infrastructure program is really to set out the business case. What is the key strategic rationale? What are the commercial returns from the project? What is the management structure? And what's the impact it's going to make? And then once we get the agreement on the business case, it's getting the funding, making sure you procure the partners who can go and deliver the project, setting up the company, the client capability that needs to be in place to deliver the project, and then establishing the technology that's needed during the build and in order to get the project to complete successfully. That's usually our role. And then we often work with governments, both kind of setting out the standards from which the project should work towards and then helping them on particular projects, usually trying to accelerate and sharpen returns and outcomes that you get from these projects. Countries, especially developed countries, have been pledging 
billions, if not trillions of dollars towards infrastructure projects. Again, it's everybody likes infrastructure spending because it produces jobs and gets the money moving around here. But there are blockers. These things take a long time, especially when we're talking about maybe energy transition infrastructure, more climate friendly infrastructure. What are the blockers, Chris? Is it people? Is it money? Is it the political will or the know-how? Or is it all of the above? All of the above, probably. The first point we have is we talk about the trilemmas, the kind of environment that we're in at the moment. And that's an environment with high money supply. So a lot of inflation. It's an environment with high energy costs and with supply constraints, with challenges around availability of products. So in that, it's quite hard to get projects set up and accelerated quickly. And I think what you often see is governments have a will to do a lot of these projects There are institutional finance funds available, but matching the will and the funds into good projects is usually the challenge. How many good projects are there and how do they accelerate in sort of uncertain future outlook? But the fear of having stranded assets, building the wrong project is often the thing that holds back. And so there's usually, you're seeing longer and longer development times when actually really what we want to do is accelerate Let's talk about the US and the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a climate bill by any other name, though it had the inflation tag on it because of politics. But what did that unlock? We know there was a lot of spending there, upwards of 700 or 800 billion dollars over the course of 10 years on infrastructure, on green energy projects. Is it the model for future climate related bills? You have to call them something else to get them passed today. Is it the type of a bill that you see uh, from your perspective that actually works and produces results in the long term, even though we're just about a year into it? I think it's a strong step. And I know lots of different countries around the world have been looking at it as a model in order to incentivize. You need that government incentivization structure in place in order to get these new technologies to come in. We haven't got effective carbon pricing. So if you're going to get a lot of these net zero path investments, you need to incentivize them. And things like incentivizing hydrogen projects, you see renewables incentives all around the world for onshore and offshore wind. Those incentives are the things that really have to kickstart and get these kinds of projects going. And in some cases, you're creating new industries, like with carbon capture technologies. That's the sort of new industry creation. And in some cases, you're accelerating the development curve for programs. So I think well, the infrastructure bill has created a big stimulus, a big accelerator. It does take time. You see this in lots of countries around the world. It takes time from the announcement of these policies to the first large scale, you know, sort of shovels in the ground delivering the projects because infrastructure moves in a very long time periods, but it's a very strong positive step towards big investment. Recall those long lead projects that are very capital intensive and there is a lot of red tape and a lot that has to happen before you can actually put the shovels or the picks into the ground. So who's doing it right? Which countries are leading the way? We always hear about Norway. We always hear about some of the countries in Eastern Europe that are really leaning heavily into wind or Western Europe in the case of Germany. But which countries are actually doing it right, putting the money behind the right types of infrastructure projects that are actually reducing climate change or reducing the impacts of climate change and are reducing risk overall? Yeah, I think you have different countries doing different elements right. So if you take acceleration of getting renewables onto the grid, you know, we've seen a big uptick offshore wind in the UK. There's been a lot of sort of hydrogen incentives in Germany. There's been, as you mentioned, acceleration of the Norwegian projects. I think they've done kind of a few early phase developments of carbon capture. The Danish focus, again, on offshore wind has been very strong. So I think what you see is in different markets, different people get 
some elements right. You know, you're seeing some massive solar acceleration. You see some high EV adoption. You know, you mentioned Norway's a very high electric vehicle adoption country. So I think the challenge for governments is assembling all these different packages of incentives and picking the ones that work and work best. And I think the way to do that is to look across all the different countries and pick the model that works best to accelerate the different particular industry area. You talked about carbon capture. It's definitely a trending technology and a trending type of industry that's getting more and more popular. Explain to us what that is actually for our listeners who have heard me talk about it. And we've explained it, but from your perspective, you've watched infrastructure builds and led them for, for decades. What is it actually and how does it manifest? Yeah, so carbon capture, there are areas of heavy industry that are very hard to reduce the emissions for. So carbon capture, I mean, what it is, it's an emissions capture device, and then it's transportation and storage. So those broadly are the three steps. So you have a capture unit, a pipe, and then a storage. We're looking to a lot of storage in offshore oil wells, for example, caverns. So that's the kind of technology it's applied into the heavy emissions that are viewed as probably too difficult to reduce. And then each ton of carbon capture will have a cost associated with it. Who are the leading companies who are sort of pushing this change and which countries have adopted it more aggressively than others? I think it's pretty early days, actually. Carbon capture is one of those ones that's definitely in the foothills of adoption. I know I've been involved in the program in the UK. I think there are full-scale programs, but no one's really done it at scale. And it's one of those things that actually that kind of structure of capturing, storing, transmitting requires volume. So I don't think there's many very large-scale, efficient volume plays. There's been many sort of false starts over the years, but I think hopefully now it will really accelerate and you are starting to see some big schemes get through to nearing to financial close. Beyond carbon capture, what are some of the other two or three trends that you think are on the come that are going to be very important, not just to industry, but to infrastructure build and potentially as investable sectors or investable technologies that might be of interest down five, 10 years down the road? I think if you look at energy, you've got the intermittent energy from renewables. So wind is huge. Onshore and offshore wind, we're seeing massive amounts of projects getting cleared. On the baseload, always available power, there's been a big swing to nuclear. And you're seeing a real focus on nuclear power plants in many different geographies, both from the large scale sort of traditional pressurized water reactor type plants, and also many of these small modular reactors coming through. I think then another huge trend is obviously towards what is the future of mobility, and both on the electric vehicle side and the electric vehicle infrastructure, and also on the future of public transport systems. And you're seeing a lot of investment actually in digital enablement, high frequency. I think there was a big focus on a high speed rail. I think what we're now seeing more is high-frequency rail and signaling systems and getting the utilization of those assets and sort of emergence of transport options for the 15-minute city. So I think those are the big trends uh, coming through at the moment. We'll definitely keep an eye out for those. So let's talk a little bit about the risk side of this. Your career and what you do inside EY and what you're doing with governments is about the build part of it. But I'm sure in those conversations, there are lots of conversations about risk, about stranded assets, about the risk of not doing something and what could underlie that, whether it's climate disaster related because countries or cities might be at risk for climate disaster or they're looking at a lot of stranded assets that are just not going to be useful over time. How much is risk a key part of those conversations you're having? Risk is a huge part of the conversation. I think big focus on outcomes. The risk 
that you see of a lot of projects is actually usually you get involved in a political process. Actually, large projects get more sort of political support than small projects and large new projects. So I think what you've had is a recognition that large new projects don't necessarily always deliver the best outcomes for the money spent. So you're seeing a lot of push towards what are exactly the outcomes we're trying to enable from the infrastructure and what is the best option to deliver it. Then you've got big risks in just constructing assets. You know, most of these large projects come in over time, over budget, and so how do you effectively estimate what those risks are when you go out? You'll see, I mean, there's been increasing focus on getting better contingency, looking at scenarios, looking at real outturns to try and better predict what the likely outcomes will be, and also then manage the risk during the transition. And then just the pace of change, as you mentioned, the risk of a stranded asset. And what we have been looking at is when we talk about the trilemmas, the three big sort of money supply, energy, and supply constraints, you're seeing a lot more volatility. And what we do is scenario test really robustly. What is the case for the project? And how does it survive the changes in these sensitivities? Can it survive inflation? Can it survive an energy cost increase? Can it survive supply constraints in order to be successful? So yeah, risk is a huge part of the agenda and often a reason why development cycles are so long. What about the risk of not doing anything and maybe leaving your city or country vulnerable to climate-related disasters? We've obviously seen that happen in Pakistan. We've seen that happen in different parts of the world, whether it's flooding, whether it's fire, whether it's sea level rising. What about the risk of doing nothing? When you look at the path we're on for net zero, we are behind and too slow. And you look at infrastructure projects, they take too long and usually a very long time in development. So I think the risk of delay is fast. And that is, I think, leading to things like the Inflation Reduction Act, like the EU Reconstruction Bill, like the UK government's 10-point plan. We often don't measure the risk of delay. You know, we measure the success of a project when it gets up there, but we don't often assess, well, what happens if we're not building this and what is the time urgency of it? And I think that's where these incentive packages will help deliver that. I think also effective carbon pricing being built in will also help deliver because it'll allow the economics of this to be priced properly. Right. You need that to sort of grease the wheels and show people that there is an actual market for this and that there is liquidity. Where's the oil and gas industry in all of this? Many of the largest of them and a lot of them are out there in Europe and many here in the US, they've committed money, billions of dollars over the years to renewable energy projects, transitioning their companies over the next several decades. But they're also riding high on record profits from oil and energy prices over the past year. How are governments working closely with these big oil majors for infrastructure or for transition-related projects? Most of the oil majors have committed to redirect a lot of their investment funds. And actually, they are the huge investors when you look at who's putting most money to work. They have the largest investment pots and they've committed to transitioning some of that. I think it's a very difficult thing for them because at the moment, obviously, you've got some very high return projects in oil and gas and you've also got a very competitive market in the renewables. So typically that means investing in things like wind, solar, hydrogen, carbon capture, all the schemes we've been talking about and also investing in areas where you've got more uncertain technology, potentially lower returns. But you are seeing them make that commitment. And increasingly, it's, this isn't an option that a lot of the regulations and focus of governments is towards ensuring that companies are hitting their own net zero plans and meeting their own sustainability commitments. So we're seeing 
all companies shift a lot of money towards it. And you see them doing projects that probably five years ago they wouldn't have considered are now becoming pretty complex. Let's talk a little bit about what can governments do to encourage or entice more investment? You talked about incentives. Is it more work with the private sector? Is it tax breaks? Is it credits? How can the governments really get the private sector more involved with this and push green infrastructure projects forward and get more of them going so we get that spend and we get that transition that we all need? Governments have got a key role in many different areas, you know, clearly laying out the policy and laying out the plan, so setting out the ambitions. And most governments you see around the world are clearly setting out an overall ambition for the country, then a government will fund some of the projects, but cannot fund all of the projects. So I think it's been clear, where are you going to fund the projects and where are you going to enable policy interventions? And then what we've got, if you look at, there's a key role for government in bringing the private sector in, in bringing the infrastructure funds, the major companies, in order to enable the infrastructure. And I think that as well as set out the policy, as well as fund some of the projects, usually a lot of transport projects that government funded around the world. And then for projects, especially in energy, the role is to set out policies that enable people to put investment to work. And when you've got big projects, you need a stable credit rating on each of the projects. So the government role is really to establish that the projects have a decent return and offer good value for money for consumers. And in that, we're seeing many different mechanisms come in, actually. The sort of evolution from private finance initiative into public partnerships, into contracts for difference, regulated asset-based models. There's a, there's a huge variety of different models that are being applied to different types of projects at the moment. Back to your risk of not doing anything, the challenge with models like regulated asset base or contracts for difference or incentivization on hydrogen prices is that they take longer to develop. So government role, I think, has to be how can you accelerate that development? How can you set out clear policies that enable the private sector to invest and that make the assets that we're hoping to build give them a strong credit rating so they can attract money needed? Lastly, let's talk about China and India quickly, two of the biggest economies. They are going to be the biggest countries and the biggest economies over the next several decades. That's just the way the trends are going. China can really spend whatever China wants to spend. I don't know what that's like in India, but you've watched these major developed economies closely. What can you tell me about what's going on inside of them in terms of their infrastructure bills, their infrastructure spend, and their willingness to spend to continue to do more? Yeah, so China has had huge amounts of investment, massive, massive growth in the power grid, massive growth in nuclear. You know, they've built more nuclear plants than anyone else by quite some way. So they are putting huge amounts of investment into infrastructure. And I think the whole Belt and Road sort of early initiative was all about an international infrastructure, and they had a huge domestic infrastructure market. India, I think, has got huge population. It's got a lot of traditional coal on the system. And I think what you're going to see is, it's interesting, that, for example, that they've been talking about their demand for future baseload power and potentially needing 250, 300 plants to replace the existing plants. So China's done a huge amount. I think India will accelerate and you'll see some really big programs. And actually, if you're thinking and you're a company looking for places of where is a scale, because a lot of the benefit you get from the new technologies is you do repeat, do repeat, do repeat. We're creating like a sort of car manufacturing for energy markets rather than these single bespoke products. And for that, you need volume, you need repeatability. And actually, I think the Indian market offers some great repeatability options and will be, I think, the market we're probably talking about in the years to come. 
We will definitely be keeping an eye on that as well as all of the trends you mentioned and some great reports out on your website at EY. Folks should check that out. We'll link to it in the show notes. Chris Lewis leads the global infrastructure team at EY. Thanks so much for joining The Green Investor. Thank you, Caleb. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's time for Green Facts, that part of the show where we get to dive deep into a fascinating fact, figure, or phenomenon happening inside the ecosystem of green investing. And this week, we got a big number, or so it would seem. That's $3.5 billion, and that's the amount that Shell, one of the world's largest oil and gas companies, spent on its renewables and energy solutions unit last year, according to company filings. That was a record high spend for the oil giant, but it also spent more than twice that amount, some $8.1 billion, in oil and gas extraction activities in 2020. Shell's profit last year, $42 billion, a record high, and more than twice the bottom line it brought home in 2021. It's time to unpack the acronym when we get to deconstruct the alphabet soup that is green investing. And this week, we are making sense of NGFS, and that's the Network of Central Banks and Supervisors for Greening the Financial System. Goes great on a t-shirt. At the Paris One Planet Summit back in 2017, eight central banks and supervisors established the NGFS. Its purpose, according to its website, is to help strengthen the global response required to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement and to enhance the role of the financial system to manage and to mobilize capital for green and low-carbon investments in the broader context of environmental sustainable development. Today, the NGFS has 121 member banks, including the U.S. Federal Reserve and the People's Bank of China, which both joined more recently. We'll go out this week, as we always do, celebrating this week in environmental history. And this week, we're going to celebrate the birthday of Ernest Haeckel. Haeckel was a German biologist, naturalist, and philosopher who discovered thousands of new species and coined many biology terms, which we still use today, including the term ecology. And that's the study of the interrelationship of species and the environment. Happy birthday, Ernest Haeckel. Thanks for all that you did. And thank you for joining us on The Green Investor, powered by Investopedia. A special thanks as well to Chris Lewis of EY for joining the program. We'll link to EY's work in infrastructure consulting and all the reports we cited on this episode. You'll find those in the show notes and on investopedia.com slash the green investor podcast. Like, share, and recommend us to a friend and send us feedback directly on Instagram or Twitter at Investopedia or send us a note to podcast at investopedia.com. Thanks for listening and whatever you're doing, keep it green. Keep it green.